Hi, everybody. This is Jason Rosenbaum, a political correspondent with St. Louis Public Radio. What you're about to hear is a conversation I had with Eric Michael Garcia. He's a political journalist who lives in Washington, D.C., who wrote the book We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation. This interview was facilitated by Left Bank Books and is part of an occasional series where I interview authors of recently released books. And just as a quick disclosure, as I usually do, we talk about the special school district of St. Louis County in this conversation, and my son receives services from SSD for his developmental disabilities. In addition to me and Eric, this interview will feature Left Bank Books' Shane Mullen, who helped lead a question and answer session and provided the following introduction. This book is a message from autistic people to the par- to their parents, friends, teachers, coworkers, and doctors showing what life is like on the spectrum. It's also my love letter to autistic people. For too long, we have been forced to navigate a world where all the road signs are written in another language. With a reporter's eye and an insider's perspective, Eric Garcia shows what it's like to be autistic across America. Garcia began writing about autism because he was frustrated by the media's coverage of it. The myths about that the disorder is caused by vaccines, the narrow portrayals of autistic people as white men working in Silicon Valley. His own life as an autistic person didn't look anything like that. He is Latino, a graduate of the University of North Carolina, and works as a journalist covering politics in Washington, D.C. Garcia realized he needed to put into writing what so many autistic people have been saying for years. Autism is a part of their identity. They don't need to be fixed. In We Are Not Broken, Garcia uses his own life as a springboard to discuss the social and political gaps that exist in supporting those on the spectrum. From education to healthcare, he explores how autistic people wrestle with systems that were not built with them in mind. At the same time, he explores, he, he shares the experiences of all types of autistic people, from those with higher support needs to autistic people of color to those in the LGBTQ plus community. In doing so, Garcia gives his, gives his community a platform to articulate their own needs rather than having others speak for them, which has been the standard for far too long. And now, without further ado, if you would please help me in warmly welcoming our fantastic guests for the evening, for the day, uh, we have Eric Garcia and Jason Rosenbaum. Eric, thank you so much for for giving me the opportunity to talk about your 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 truly amazing book. And as uh, Shane mentioned, it, it really is a groundbreaking book because one of the core contentions about We're Not Broken is that autistic people should articulate what they want instead of others like their parents speaking for them. And I'm curious how well this message has been received since, as you explain in the book, surrogates as as opposed to autistic people have dominated the conversation about autism for many, many years. It's been really well received, I think, for the most part. I think a lot of people recognize that autistic people Uh, are the ultimate and definitive authorities in their lives. Uh, At the same time, there have been some um, parents, you know, I I try to make it a point to read, to not just read the professional view, to read like what regular people are saying. There's some parents who say that, well, my son or daughter is... uh, has difficulty speaking or difficulty communicating, so they can't necessarily articulate their needs, to which my response is that, uh, A, 
they're even if it's just the most basic things like if your kid is having a meltdown that's them communicating to you and that's them articulating their needs to you because they are having a traumatic response to their environment around them and in the same respect i think that my argument has also been that autistic people like my is that a, a lot of autistic people who are considered low functioning have the capacity to speak for themselves we just haven't listened to them for a lot of times a lot of times we don't get the communication devices or other types of uh, facilitated communication and the other thing is that plenty of autistic people like myself have a lot more in common with uh autistic people who may need higher support, uh, who may require more support. But for the most part, I think it's been pretty positive. And I wanted to touch on that exact point about what I feel is like one of the most important takeaways of your book, which and there's many important takeaways, which we're going to get to. But I think you're you really try to push back against this idea about high functioning and low functioning autism, and basically insinuating that this perception is dangerous because it provides this idea that somebody has more value than others based on their support needs. I want you to walk me through why that is an important point and why it's dangerous this has manifested itself in society. Yeah, so this really goes back to, I think, really the beginning of uh, perceptions about autism, going back to Nazi-occupied Vienna when Hans Osberger was uh, arguing and, discuss- and researching autism. And, you know, later on, we realized that he was sending his kids, sending some of these kids to these institutions where they were being killed. But I think what it does is that it says that there are, is it creates almost this kind of tiered brackets. And it says that, well, there are these autistic people who are quote unquote low functioning. So we don't need to expect that much from them. And either what happens with them is that we allocate all our resources to them at the expense of quote unquote high functioning people. Uh, and we become really paternalistic toward them, or we wind up saying that, well, they're low functioning, so we can't really expect much from them. So we're not gonna spend that much money on them. Conversely, I think when you talk about high-functioning autistic people, what happens is that it flattens their experience and it says that, um, oh, well, they're quote-unquote high-functioning, so we we don't need to spend that much money on them or we don't need to give that many accommodations for them because they seem fine. Uh, I was talking with uh, a parent in... um, uh, you know, here in the United States, and I think somewhere in Illinois, I forget where exactly, but they were asked, they were asking me, why should my uh, adult daughter get diagnosed? Aren't they going to use that as a crutch? Uh, never mind that crutches can be good for people. Are, are they going to use it as an excuse? You know, they seem perfectly fine. Why should I diagnose them? And my response to that is that, um, having a diagnosis allows you to know what you're working with. And for many years, a lot of autistic people, particularly women, don't realize that they're autistic. And a lot of times they try to navigate the world as neurotypical people. But I think the other thing is that a lot of times what it might do is that if you say someone's high functioning, it might lead to people focusing only on those high, quote unquote, high functioning people and not enough on people with higher support needs. So rather what I tend to prefer to use is I tend to prefer to use terms like higher support needs, which is for people who may need help around the clock, who might need facilitated communication, you know, assistive communication devices, who might need Medicaid home and community-based services, and uh, lower support needs, autistic people who might be people like myself, or people who might need, who maybe don't need help around the clock, but maybe need some supports or some accommodations. Because then what it does is that ultimately you're describing what they need rather than how the world perceives them, which is what I think functioning labels do. I want to talk a little bit about the tensions of being a self-advocate, because I, I recently asked a Missouri lawmaker who is gay 
whether people who identify as part of the LGBTQ community get tired of being the de facto spokespeople whenever there's a controversy around gay rights popping up. And he said, no, you know, I got into this business wanting to advocate for that community. But you kind of get into this tension really early in the book when you talk to a Pennsylvania state legislator who is one of the few autistic uh, state lawmakers in the country. And, 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 And correct me if I'm wrong, I'm paraphrasing here. It seems that she wants to be known as a well-rounded legislator who happens to be autistic rather than the autistic legislator. So I want you to talk about this this tension that a lot of uh, uh, prominent autistic people have about wanting to be self-advocates but not wanting to be pigeonholed as just the autistic X or Y. Right. So I think it's important to remember that Jessica Benham, she's now a state legislator. She won her election. Uh, and I was actually just talking. I was on a panel with her last night. Uh, so I got some fresh some fresh meat for you, Jason. So uh, I think that one of the things that she says is that every issue is a disability issue. So yes, so and I think it's different because as a state legislator, her job is to represent multiple people, and her job is to represent people who are not autistic and who are autistic. Whereas I think that for someone like myself or someone who so I don't consider myself an advocate, but I consider myself a journalist who covers it. I think that it's. Uh, I still think that whenever these types of things pop up, it's important for people like myself to step forward and write about it or cover this event or include autistic voices because we have the know-all, the, the, the know-how and the wherewithal. And in the same way, I think that people like Jessica Benham, uh, who are state legislators or disabled activists or disabled people who work in different administrations can bring forward themselves and can say, this is what the disability community is saying. This is what they, this is what they're articulating. This is what they say they need. So it's not necessarily being single issue people, but it's bringing their experience and bringing the knowledge that they have as, um, as disabled people Uh, and as autistic people to any conversation and discussion to make sure that they're not being excluded or they're not being forgotten about or people aren't talking over them. So when you cover federal politics in Washington, D.C., what do you think influences elected leaders about what they say and do about how autistic people should be treated? Yeah, that is a good question. I think what happens is that politicians are only as good and elected officials are only as good as the information that gets them. So what has happened is that for a long time, parents and I'd argue they still are, the kind of de facto, they're seen as the de facto experts uh, or researchers or clinicians. And what that does is that dictates what policy is. So, you know, uh, but I think what's happened over time is that the first generation of autistic people who benefited from the Americans with Disabilities Act and who benefited from the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act and who also benefited from expanding diagnostic criteria as this was happening in the 80s and 90s, they're growing up now. So I think now what you're seeing is autistic people are able to shape their own narratives and they're able to advocate themselves and they're able to advise politicians and speak to politicians about their own experiences to the extent that many uh, Democratic presidential candidates this last cycle, and we can talk about this later, uh, advised many of the disability policy proposals. I'm sure you saw it during the presidential campaign, plenty of Democratic presidential candidates, except for Joe Biden until, uh, you know, released these comprehensive disability policies. And it was a real landmark that they consulted with autistic people while creating it. So I think that what you're seeing now is you're seeing that kind of, you know, I talk about the, you know, I don't want to pit parents 
with autistic people because a lot of times their their interests are the same. But I think what happens is that a lot of older organizations that maybe didn't have autistic voices are now finding themselves are now finding that autistic people are speaking out and saying where there were holes in their arguments. And they might take a little bit of umbrage with that. And then also now, I think a lot of autistic people who previously weren't being consulted uh, are now able, are now have the means and the political capital to speak out so that their voice is taken seriously uh, in ways that I don't think it was even 10 years ago. Yeah, let's talk about what happened 10 years ago. I mean, in your book and in a lot of really fabulous interviews you've done, you point out that it was really mainstream for high-level politicians to talk about curing and eliminating autism, like Barack Obama used that language a lot. What do you think was the turning point where the idea of seeing autism as something to be cured was decisively challenged by people who felt the solution was remaking the world for autistic people? I think that it started, the the real kind of tinder and kindling was begun in the 1990s with people like Jim Sinclair and Donna Williams. Uh, But it really begins, I think, in earnest when a lot of autistic self-advocates, when groups like the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network were formed, groups like the Autism Women and Non-Binary Network were formed. Um, And what happened is these groups is that on top of that, a lot of these advocates eventually joined the federal government. So Arina Emman, who was the founder of the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, uh, was the first openly autistic presidential appointee uh, in the Obama administration. Uh, on top of that, you saw John Marble was the second openly autistic appointee in uh, in the presidential administration, the same administration, the Obama administration. So what happened is you simultaneously saw these, um, you simultaneously saw people, autistic people gaining real tangible political power uh, at the same time, autistic self-advocates were now growing up. They were graduated from college, or they were, were college students at the time, and they could talk to their state, and they talk, could talk to their representatives, or their members of Congress, or their senators, uh, and they could really articulate. They could really speak out in a way. And I think that you started to see that in 2016. But what really changes it, and I read about this a little bit. I didn't get to go into it as much as I would have liked to. Uh, what really changes is how when in 2017, when a lot of autistic self-advocates joined a lot of the other disability rights advocates in protesting the repeal of the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. What happened is that gave them a lot of political cachet among Democrats because now they were seen as being the people who were protesting in front of Mitch McConnell's office. They were seen as the people who in many ways saved, you know, this landmark piece of democratic legislation so they built a lot of political capital and political power they otherwise didn't have. It's one thing to be in office and to have some kind of influence. It's another thing to be part of a larger coalition and to lend your specific um, your specific talents to that group. So, like one of my favorite uh, stories is uh, you know when I, is that like one of my favorite signs that I saw during the Obamacare debates that disability rights advocates, it was uh, autistic people had a sign that says, please stop trying to appeal Obamacare so so autistic people don't have to make any more phone calls. Um, So that gave them uh, increased political capital. And when you have increased political capital, then that means you're a constituency group that needs to be courted. And that's what you saw where, where I think a lot of language changed to the extent, I didn't get to write about it in the book, I wrote it in an initial draft and then we had to cut it. Um, you had someone like, you know, 
in 2008, you, you had Barack Obama talking about the skyrocketing rate of autism. In 2016 or, or in 2020, you saw Pete Buttigieg, or in 2020, 2019, you saw him say that we're seeing an increased uh, prominence in autism because more people are open and being more prom- and being more candid about it. That is within a span of 11 years that you see a seismic shift in how polit- political rhetoric has changed. But there was another constituency that was especially active in the 1990s, which was a ne- more negative one. And that was, I think, the, the, the parents that were holding on to this canard that, and falsehood that, aut- that, that vaccines cause autism. And this, this was, again, similar to the, the elimination or curing language. This was a very mainstream position for a while where, where you, I think you write in the book about Tom Harkin of Iowa believing this. So similar to the other question, uh, why do you think that this idea was able to gain legitimacy? And and, and why do you think that this idea that uh, vaccines cause autism got pushed to the fringes of society? And we'll talk in in the next question about how it's come out of the shadows in a really bad way. Yeah, uh, yeah, this is a really good question. So I think what happened is in the 1980s, uh, you have to remember up until, and this is going to be a little bit of a tangent. So like, we, to get to the 1990s, we need to go back to the 1960s and the 1950s. It's important to remember that autism didn't have its own separate diagnosis um, in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, otherwise known as the DSM, until 1980. Up until then, it was included as a symptom of schizophrenia. So when, what that meant was that in 1980, you see more people getting individually diagnosed with autism. Again, in, I think, 1987, you see the introduction of pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise specified, also known as PDD-NOS. And then again, in uh, around that time, Lorna Wing in the United Kingdom discovers Hans Asperger's old writings. Her husband, John, speaks German. They translate it. You get Asperger syndrome, which is included in the DSM in 1984. At the same time, you saw the Individual, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act specific, uh, was reauthorized. It was initially the Education for Handicapped Children Act because reauthorized as the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And what happens is that for the first time, it includes autism as a disability and therefore a disability that uh, is entitled to a free, appropriate public education. That's a term a lot of people know, a faith. But that meant for the first time, autism was included. So what did that mean? That meant that now schools had to report to the federal government the amount of autistic people they were serving. So what that meant is that you naturally just saw more people, You because you had increased and better diagnostic criteria and you had a government mandate, you saw an increase in prevalence of diagnoses, even if that didn't mean... Um, even, if that, even if that didn't necessarily mean that there was an increase in actual cases of autism. It just meant that we were... And so what happened is in that vacuum, um, you saw a lot of people freaking out because there were, because autism was seen as something that only happened one in 10,000. It was seen as this very, very narrow thing. And so what happened is people started wondering what's causing it. And in that vacuum, you start to see uh, Andrew Wakefield, who is a professor at the, who's a physician at the Royal Free Hospital in London, put out his initial study in The Lancet saying that it caused, that the, the measles mumps rubella vaccine causes leaky gut syndrome, which leads to chemicals going to the brain and autism. And that gained a lot of cachet because it was this confluence of people who were wondering what was causing autism. And he gave what a lot of, and he did what a lot of conspiracy theorists do. 
he offered a really simplistic solution to a very nuanced and complex answer. And it's also important to remember that up until the 1970s, parents were blamed for autism because there was this thing called refrigerator mothers. So you still had that overhang from that. So what it did is it allowed parents to absolve themselves from guilt and say, wow, it wasn't my fault this whole time. It was the damn doctors or it was the, you, 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 you know, the people like that, or it was, it, it was them, you know, that caused it. And that, it, it, again, it placed blame on somewhere else when really there was no one to quote unquote blame. People were just being born. But let's talk about how this, the, 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 this anti-vaccine and autism confluence has really become very dangerous today. I'm going to, yes. I'm going to read a quote from Sarah Luderman uh, who tweeted this out. I think on Sunday, that the autism community was a canary in the coal mine here, except we didn't actually adequately deal with the problem, wasted millions on anti-vaccine research, and tolerated all kinds of quackery. So what are the links to what we're seeing now with the COVID-19 vaccine conspiracy theories and hesitancy and, and what we saw with the vaccines equal autism falsehoods of the 90s? Really good question, really important question, and I've said this before and I'll say it a million times. Uh, The autism vaccine panic of the 1990s and the 2000s is to the COVID-19 panic what The Hobbit is to The Lord of the Rings. Uh, it laid the groundwork. You would so when Sarah says that you know we we allow for the most toxic things. What that means is that even is that understand Andrew Wakefield put out his study in 1998. He didn't get his medical license revoked, and that study in the Lancet wasn't retracted until 2010. So that was 12 years where this thing was out there. Now, there were people in between in the interim debunking it, but this thing was in the Lancet, and he was testifying before Congress. He testified before Congress multiple times. And it sowed the seeds of doubt and paranoia, and it was what led people to um, report autism cases to VAERS, V-A-E-R-S, I forget what it stands for, but like vaccine, averse injury research, something like that. We've heard a lot about VAERS recently, obviously. You hear about a lot of now, about it now, which what people don't realize is that VAERS is the equivalent, uh, is to medical research what a Yelp review is to food criticism. Um, I forget, one of my friends said that, my friend Andrew said that, you, you know, so, it, it, but it, it sowed the seeds and it created this sense of doubt that vaccines were this public health good. And in fact, during the coronavirus pandemic, there was a great uh, op-ed in the New York Times like two, three weeks ago, or even a month ago, I think, uh, saying that like during the coronavirus pandemic, a lot of the anti-vaxxers from, you know, the original vaccine panic about autism, um, saw the COVID-19 pandemic as an opportunity to be seized. They saw it as a time to sow doubt about, about vaccines and to spread misinformation and fear to the extent that Andrew Wakefield now, he's going on QAnon podcasts. Um, you know, you, you know, like that's, there is this weird now, almost a singularity of conspiracism and uh, sowing of doubt and sowing of all this kind of misinformation that I don't think you otherwise would that, that you wouldn't have seen had there not been that initial push in fear. Uh, you know, a lot of polling has shown women being afraid of getting, getting the vaccine. A perfect example of that is that a lot of the, the is that the early mistrust about vaccines and autism 
was born on mom blogs and was born on like, because it was moms writing about their kids being autistic. That now there's some data, there's some research showing now that women are more willing to get vaccinated than men. Uh, that looks like the data has changed on that, but that I have changed on that. But I think that you wouldn't have that initial push and that initial doubt and mistrust if there hadn't been the vaccine panic of the 1990s and the 2000s. I want to provide like maybe a non-political anecdote to showcase how deeply held beliefs are about uh, mis- misbeliefs about autism. And it involves a uh, involves Sia, who is somebody who I used I used to love as a musician, probably like one of my favorite pop musicians of the 2010s. And, you know, she created the greatest video, which was probably one of the best pieces of content about the Pulse nightclub shooting. So clearly she has some sensitivity to traditionally disadvantaged communities. But then she's responsible for this absolutely horrendous movie about a, a nonverbal autistic person who's not even played by a, a, an autistic person. And, 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 and the, the most startling thing to me is when Sia was challenged by autistic people, she was openly hostile. How does this happen where people may seem really enlightened for other disadvantaged minorities, but have a total blind spot when it comes to autistic people? Yeah, so this is a really good thing, and I'm really glad that you, I'm really glad you brought this up. So I, I should say that, like, Sia, I don't, yeah, Sia, that was a disaster. I watched that movie the day it came out, and I was, aside from it being, being really harmful about autism, like, uh, it also was just a really terrible movie on top of that. So, like, I think it's important to distinguish the two. Like, it was a bad movie on the merits of film, and it was, like, really promoted a lot of really harmful ideas. But I think what it shows is that, Sia was consulted. The fact that she didn't think to consult autistic people until after the movie came out and the fact that uh, shows that she was kind of cloistered and she didn't think that and she was getting bad information and she was getting bad uh, consulting about it because she thought she was doing a great thing. She said that this was her love letter to autism. She said that she cared about it. But then like when autistic people said, no, this is really bad. She's like, well, maybe, and she said that like, why didn't you cast an autistic actor? She's like, well, it was really, it was too hard to do that. And like, we had this autistic actress who wanted to do it, but she was too overwhelmed. And it was like, maybe that's a reflection on the fact that you didn't make the place, make the, the, the setting adaptable. And again, it was like when somebody said, like, I've been trying to break through it. She's like, well, maybe you're just a bad actress. It was all like, I get that. I get what it's like to work on something for a long time and then have it be received terribly. I get it. Like we don't, we, we as human beings don't necessarily like to receive bad criticism, especially something we put in our heart and our soul into. But the fact that she didn't uh, understand that this would be the response shows that she wasn't listening to autistic people the whole time shows that she was getting people who were, who were, Usually, who were probably just telling her, yeah, this is great. This is what's working. And that shows that she wasn't listening to autistic people. So it shows, so like, it's really easy for me to make fun of Sia. And I've done, Lord knows I've done a ton of that on Twitter. Um, But like, the point that I always make is that like, there were people advising her who said, yeah, no, it's fine. Like, we don't need to consult autistic people. We don't need to cast autistic actors. The production company didn't say, don't you think we might need to, you know, include autistic voices on this or at least do a focus group screening with autistic people? The, you know, the directors and the, and the choreographers, there were so many things and so many so many times and moments where they could have put a, a red light to this that they didn't. And I think that's the bigger indictment is that 
it got to this point and the movie came out and then she got upset and she took umbrage at being at getting justifiable pushback if, if you ask me because i watched the movie and it was horrendous but it was also she didn't realize she didn't think she didn't stop to think because celebrities do kind of live in a different insular world and they don't necessarily have experience listening to them but but at the same time i would also argue that that's not really an excuse because pixar did one of the best portrayals of autism i've seen in a long time with their short film loop and uh you know they cast an autistic girl to play the main character who is non-speaking they, uh, they, you know, they listened to autistic advocates and autistic consultants. Uh, shows like everything's going to be okay. Consulted autistic people, um, but but I think it just shows how misinformation leads to even really well-intentioned things. I don't think CEO had bad intentions. She just didn't listen, and she didn't want. And, and on top of that, I don't think that she realized that autistic people have their own agency and their own voices, and that their voices and their needs are legitimate. So I think that's ultimately what happened. Now, I want to talk about another really important chapter in your book, and it involves race and, and racism and the racial gaps um, when it comes to autism. And, you know, we kind of have seen this in St. Louis. I live in St. Louis County, and I want to be nuanced here. St. Louis County does have the largest population of African-Americans in the state, but it's still a 70 percent white county. And we have the probably one of the best funded special education systems, I don't want to say in America, but probably in the Midwest with the special school district. And then you go across the border in St. Louis City, which is a largely black school district, and they're not part of SSD, and they have a lot of trouble retaining special education people. Do you see this types of disparities when it comes to providing education for disabled people elsewhere? And, and how do these racial disparities when we're in the way autistic people are perceived, again, manifest themselves in really dangerous ways. That happens in so many places, not I mean, outside of Missouri. Um, so many autistic people I interviewed, autistic people of color, uh, were diagnosed after when they became adults. And can you imagine going K through 12 and even undergrad not knowing that you're autistic? Um, you know, plenty of them get, or because of perceptions about children of color and black kids, a lot of black kids get diagnosed with conduct disorders or behavioral disorders or, 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 or kind of defiance disorders or they're seen as just having poor behavior or they're reprimanded. And it's not seen as they might be having a developmental disability and that they might need help. And I think the other thing is that you see a gap. I think that the gap can be anywhere. There was a study that came out last year showing the gap can be anywhere from like six months to a few years. Uh, you know, so that even when autistic people do get diagnosed, they get diagnosed much later than their white counterparts. And this is to say that because our perceptions of autism are shaped largely by what it looks like in white people, and particularly white males, that shapes who gets diagnosed. So it's important to go back. The initial the in early 1943 study that was done on autism in the United States uh, by the guy named Leo Connor, who was a professor at Johns Hopkins University, he found the initial nine children he surveyed, uh, 11 children he surveyed, nine of them were white and Anglo-Saxon or Anglo-Saxon, and two of them were Jewish. So what that means is that the template that we have for autism today is shaped very much by that. And then on top of that, eight of the eight of the 11 children were boys, three of them were girls. 
So already there, the schema and who we perceive as who can be autistic is shaped by, it's the idea that it can only be somebody who's likely white and more often than not somebody who's male. Meanwhile, in Vienna, Hans Asperger, he thought that it only affected, as you can imagine, Vienna at the time was a very uh, homogeneous country. And he thought for a while that it didn't affect girls. So our perception already from the gate is shaped by this. And the gap is closing a little bit or, or tremendously for uh, to the point that it's only like there's like a 1.2 ratio, the, the amount of diagnosis like 1.2%. But that only happened in 2016. And on top of that, there still is a big gap with Latinos and Asian Americans uh, just because of the language gap. And a lot of the tools that are used to diagnose are still in English. Uh, so, so, so there still is a very big racial and gender gap, I should say. I think one of the the most striking things about this book, it's really beautifully written. I love how it lifts, uplifts other people's voices and really tries to get a diverse uh, swath of people. Um, and, I, you know, the other thing that was notable is you even touch on it a couple times that you did not want to make this into the Eric Garcia autobiography, even though you sprinkled in points of your your, your life. I, and I'm interested from a, from, a, from somebody who also identifies as a writer why did you decide to make this decision to shining a spotlight primarily on others rather than it just be like a memoir? Yeah, I mean, I think you and I are both reporters, right? And I think that there's just this genuine general curiosity. And I think that uh, I don't have anything against a lot of memoir, against most autism memoirs. A lot of them are great. I'm reading a few right now. Uh, there's a really good one that's out of the UK right now. It should be coming out of the US now soon. It's called Drama Queen by Sarah Gibbs. Um, but I think that generally my job is I'm a political reporter and I'm a reporter and I was just like, at any time I started writing, anytime I felt this kind of impulse to write about myself, I was like, wait, is this really, am I just thinking this or did this just happen to me or does this happen elsewhere? And then the thing that led me to that, that I then thought was, well, if this happened to me or if I experienced it, then, then this must have happened to someone, to someone else. And I think that my feeling was, I was like, I don't want just my story I worried that just telling my story would color people's perceptions as this is what happens with autism rather than I was more like, wait, I'm curious. Did this almost every time I started to write about myself, I was more curious, like, wait, did this happen to other people or what's it or, or and if it didn't, then, OK, how how is this different from everybody else? So it was more and more. I just became more curious that um, uh, that I realized okay, there are other autistic people and they experience, they, their lives are very different from mine. And other ways, they're very, very similar to mine. And then on top of that, what I realized is that uh, I was able to succeed because of very specific, very deliberate policy goals. And the other thing that I realized is that a lot of other autistic people were, uh, you know, languished or had difficulty because of lack and gaps in policies. And I thought that that was a much more interesting story than anything I could tell, you know, just on my own, just on my own accord. All right, Shane, I'm going to throw it back to you. And hopefully we have some good audience questions. Almost exactly on a couple of questions. So I'm really thankful for this conversation. It was really enlightening. And uh, let's get to some audience questions. Uh, Shirley asks, did your perception of yourself change as you were writing the book? Uh, yes, it did. Um, so, uh, I, so, so yeah, it, it absolutely did. I think that what I learned was, uh, uh, you, you know, 
Uh, one, one second. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I think that what I think that what it, what it taught me was that um, I started out thinking that um, a lot of my experiences were very individualized. Then what I realized is that they were pretty similar to everybody else's. So like, for example, you, you know, my friend John Marble, who I profiled in the book, he compares autis- being autistic to being French. And he says that, you know, if a Catholic, not that there's a very, that if you are uh, a fashion designer in Paris, your experience is going to be very different from being a Catholic, not in Bordeaux. But it, but there's still this, if, you, if you're sitting at a cafe in, say, the Champagne region, those they're still going to have some kind of esprit de corps from being French. And I think what I, what I realized and what I learned was that um, a lot of very, very things that I thought were weird about me or that were very, made me kind of an oddball were actually part of this larger, these larger traits of being autistic. One of my favorite things that I did when I, when I researched this book was when I went to go, um, when I went to Michigan and I went to this retreat out in the woods in Michigan at this, uh, at this used to be a Jewish day camp, but it was for autistic people, autistic adults. And we had the, the most wonderful time playing Scrabble and playing games and talking. And what I noticed was after, after like three or four hours, all of us started, our guards started to come down. And we were able to start stimming and rocking back and forth. And we started, you know, enthusiastically info dumping and talking about what we loved about things like that. So we, you know, we, we, and I realized, oh, this is what it's, this is, it was kind of like autistic code switching in a weird way. You know, we were allowed to be ourselves. So we were ourselves. The other thing was I realized is that there's no right or wrong way to be autistic. I think one of the things that even though I grew up, you know, I was diagnosed when I was younger, I always kind of worried that because I didn't, I think when I initially started writing about autism, I was like, I don't know enough about this, or I don't know about, about that, or I don't understand this, or I don't understand that. I often wondered that I wasn't, that I wasn't the right kind of autistic and what I've realized since is that there's no right or wrong way to be autistic. Amanda is asking, my oldest child is autistic and they think that my youngest child may be also. I agree that it's possible, but so far the youngest hasn't had issues at school, which is how the oldest got a diagnosis. Do you think it's important to get a diagnosis regardless? Uh, oh, yeah. My answer is yeah. Um, I, think that they, I think that they could be, I think that... Um, the reason why I say that is that I understand is that a lot of times there is a double-edged sword because you don't want to subject your kid to a lot of traumatic treatment. But on the other end, the only way you can get the access, the services when you're in school is if you have the piece of paper. So, I, I, and but more than that, I think with the, but more than the piece of paper, I think what it offers is it offers clarity. Um, and the clarity is going to outlast the, uh, 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 it, the clarity is going to outlast any benefits that like having that piece of paper is because once you know that you're autistic, I cannot tell you how many people I've interviewed or I've talked to or I've spoken to. I said, once they got the autism diagnosis, they were like, Oh, I know what I'm working with. I know what I have. That is, that can't be, I, I almost want to say that that's more important than getting the services. Not that the services aren't important, but you only, but like it's the it's the foundation for which the services can be built on. You know what I mean? You can't know what you need if you're not aware that you're working with something different. 
So once you get the foundation of the diagnosis, then everything else, not to say that everything's going to be perfect because it's not, but then you know what you need to go and you can at least try to build a roadmap and try and fail and try again. Now, before we sign off, I do want to ask this question. What do you think about Missouri politics? I'm interested to hear an outsider's view of what I have to deal with on a, on a daily basis. I mean, I, I mean, I, I follow you. So like, I mean, that's, that's one thing. And I follow a lot of people at the Kansas City Star and St. Louis Public Radio and all these other, all these other outlets. I think it's just fascinating to see that. Like, I think that a lot of people would make the mistake that think that Missouri is trending rightward and make no mistake. It is, you know, politically it's rightward and, you know, it, you know, statewide elected officials are rightward. But I think that it's, it's kind of the same thing as like where I grew up in North, when I went to college in North Carolina, people thinking that, you know, it's all Republican or where I grew up in California, that it's all Democratic. I think that there are a lot of smaller internecine fights and, and, and then just because, and then even there are fights within the same party as, you, you know, as you, you know, you covered Eric Greitens kind of fall from, fall from power. Um, uh, and, and, you know, as you know, he is not, really that much of a fan of a guy I see on the Senate a lot, Senator Josh Hawley. Uh, so, so, so I think that it's, it's, it's more than just this monolithic kind of thing that, you know, there, there, there's little many things that kind of create this amalgamation of this place called Missouri. You can learn more about Garcia's book by following him on Twitter at Eric M. Garcia. And you can learn more about Left Bank books by going to left-bank.com. And for all of our coverage about politics and healthcare go to stlpr.org. I'm Jason Rosenbaum, and thank you for listening.